So John 3, 1 through 13. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, son of man. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, indeed, you are worthy to be praised. You are worthy to be praised with our every thought and deed. Father, we sing those words and can only think about how often we fall short of that declaration. You are worthy to be praised with our every thought and deed, and yet, Lord, we have not loved you and praised you with every thought of our minds, with every intent of our heart, with every deed that we've done. We have not loved you the way you deserve and the way that your law demands. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you that in Christ you will see that reality fulfilled in each one of us. Lord, we in whom you have planted the seed of life, this, this seed of new life in Christ Jesus, you will see that seed come to full fruition in the day of Christ's glory when we are conformed perfectly to his glory and dwell with you forever. Lord, what more could we ask for this morning than that you would hallow your name among us, that you would let the holiness and the sanctity of your name be known in greater measure in each one of our hearts and lives. Father, we pray this morning that you would accomplish a great work in our hearts. Lord, we want to be assured of salvation in you. We want to know that we have been born again, but we want our knowledge of having been born again to rest upon the firm foundation of our God's faithfulness and his promises. Or we want to be able to see and discern that you have indeed accomplished this great work in us. So please give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Lord, give us hearts that are plowed and, and, and ready to receive the good word that you have for us to look at today. Father, above all else, we pray that you would magnify Christ Jesus among us, that you would lift high your Son and give us hearts that long and glory in 
him being exalted. Father, we pray for this and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How about that? I have water from last week left up here. (laughs) Throat's feeling a little dry today, but it doesn't taste too bad. A little bit like paper and maybe a hint of dust in that, but that's all right. Well, we're in the middle of uh, John chapter 3, or at least the opening section of John chapter 3. Today we're primarily focusing in on John chapter 3, verse 8, and the truths that Jesus has to teach us in that verse relating to the new birth. And uh, this is part two of a series within this study of the Gospel of John that we're titling, You Must Be Born Again. And uh, you remember the story from George Whitfield I shared last week. A reporter asked him, why do you go around telling everyone that you must be born again? And Whitfield's response was, because you must be born again. You must be born again. It must happen in your life. You must experience the reality of the new birth. Otherwise, as Jesus says in this passage, you cannot see nor enter into the kingdom of God. So last week, as we were looking into the passage here, what Jesus has to say here, we were looking really at the necessity of the new birth and the various ways that Jesus describes the nature of the new birth in this, in these sec- this section of verses, particularly verses 1 to 8. Now, the importance of the new birth, as I just mentioned, was magnified when Jesus says that where you and I will spend eternity depends upon whether or not we have experienced this radical, life-transforming change that is called the new birth. It's actually what made Charles Spurgeon say that of all the days of a man's history, the most important day is the day when he is born again. Now that reality drives us to ask a question. If the new birth is so necessary that we can't even enter into the kingdom of God without it, then how can I know if I have experienced the new birth? If my entire eternal future is dependent upon whether or not I truly have received this blessing of the Spirit of God known as the new birth, if everything in my eternal future hinges upon whether I've experienced that, then how can I know here and now whether I have or have not experienced it? That's the question that we're seeking to answer today. And I believe it's a question that God wants each one of us to be able to answer with confidence. And so to that end, we're going to have two questions, trying to answer the one question. We're going to have two questions today and next week, helping us understand and discern what it means to be born again and whether or not we've experienced it. So the two questions today, one is, what is, what is the cause of the new birth? What causes the new birth in a person's life? And then the second question will be, what is the evidence or what are the evidences of the new birth? What, what proves that I have experienced the new birth? 
We're going to look at one of those evidences found here in the Gospel of John in John chapter 3 today. Next week, we're going to return to consider at least two more. Now, before we get into the message, I want to make clear there are three things that I'm aiming for in these messages. And I want you to pay attention to these. This is what I'm shooting for. Why are we walking through this series seeking to understand the reality of, of what is involved in being born again? Well, number one, what I'm aiming for is for all of us to have a better understanding of what happens in the new birth. Many of you know John Owen. John Owen is one of my favorite uh, authors to read. His theological works, I believe, are at least on par with Jonathan Edwards, if it does not exceed him. It may get me in trouble with some people. But I really appreciate John Owen a lot. John Owen blamed the uh, fallen spiritual state of the professing church and the professing ministers of the church in his day. He blamed that primarily upon a lack of understanding regarding the Spirit's work in regeneration. And I agree with that assessment. This is why when George Whitfield went about preaching about the new birth, the Lord used that preaching to spark the Great Awakening. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. What must be done? Jonathan Edwards' sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. What must be done for you to escape from the wrath of God that is to come? You must be saved from that wrath. You must be delivered from your sin. You must be brought into the freedom of Christ Jesus. Otherwise, you remain a sinner hangling by a slender thread above the fires of hell, a sinner in the hands of an angry God. John Owen believed that lack of understanding concerning that reality was what led to the fallen state of the church in his day, and I agree with that. And so as we seek to understand what it means to be born again and what's entailed in being born again, I, I don't want us to be ignorant of this great work because I want us to be a healthy church. You know, how many churches in this area would, would rejoice at the thought of preaching about the new birth and the sovereignty of God and the new birth and the reality that you can do nothing to cause yourself to be born again? What other church in this area would rejoice at that? I rejoice at that. Because this is the power of God unto salvation. This is what we must understand if we're going to be a healthy church standing firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand how it is that God brings us into the freedom of the gospel. And that's by means of the new birth. So I want us to understand the new birth so that we can be a healthier church. Number two, I want us to understand the new birth better so that we will all have greater assurance of our salvation. Or at least we will have greater assurance of salvation in the hearts of those who have experienced it. Assurance of God's love for you as your heavenly father comes from having a greater realization that he actually has caused you to be born again as his child. The confidence and the conviction, the boldness that you have to approach the throne of God and call upon Him as your heavenly Father, that confidence and that boldness will only increase to the degree that you are confident that He has made you His child. And so we want to understand better what it means to be born again and what it means to have fruit of that new birth in our lives so that we can have more confidence to approach God in the name of Christ, not merely as our judge, not merely as our creator, not merely as Lord and sovereign, but as our Father. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm after that. I, I'm actually feeling really burdened in these messages to seek your to seek a greater level of assurance in your hearts concerning the work of God in bringing sinners to salvation. Number three, third reason we're camping on this for a few weeks is so that by God's grace, there might be a great awakening in the hearts of anyone in this room who has not yet experienced the new birth. If at the end of these messages... There are some among us who cannot see evidence of the new birth in your life, then half of my job is done. Because you have been exposed to the word of truth, and the true state of your own heart has been made known. The other half of my job will be trying to move you with the word of God to do something about it. To flee to Christ as the only one who has the power to change hearts. So, those are the three things I'm, I'm aiming for in these messages. And I would ask all of you to pray with me that these goals would not only be pleasing in the eyes of God, but that he would accomplish them among us for his praise and for our good. All right, so with that said, first question for today, and answer, well actually, Second question and answer to that one primary question. First sub-question. What causes the new birth? I believe this is the most important element for us to understand regarding the new birth. What is the cause of the new birth? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in John chapter 3, verse 8, very simply and straightforwardly. Jesus answers that the Holy Spirit is the one who causes the new birth in a person's life, and Jesus emphasizes in this verse that this is completely and entirely according to his sovereign will. We pointed this out at the end of last week's sermon, where among the different ways that Jesus describes the new birth to us in this passage, one of his main points is that the new birth is entirely outside of our control. It is not something that can be manipulated from God. We can't work unto it. We can't make God want to give us the blessing of the new birth. No, God must be the initiator in bringing us to new life in Christ. When Jesus says that this is a birth that is from above, that necessarily implies that it is not a birth that originates from anything below. It's not from this world, in other words. In John 3.8, Jesus says it's entirely dependent, this great work of being born again is entirely dependent upon the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from, nor where it is going. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Now, this statement in John 3.8 is really kind of explaining something that we've already seen in the Gospel of John. You remember in John chapter 1, verse 13, verses 12 and 13, we're talking about the blessing of being made children of God in Christ. And Jesus, or uh, John, the Apostle John, writes in verse 13 that those who were made children of God in Christ were not those who were born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were those who were born of God. What makes someone a child of God? Well, the fact that that person has been born of God. Well, here in John 3.8, Jesus tells us that to be born of God means that we have been born of God's Spirit. 
This is Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' question about how a man can be born when he is old. He stresses that this kind of birth only happens when the Holy Spirit sovereignly chooses to blow with saving power upon a sinner. Isn't that glorious? I don't know if you know this, but the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners is a major theme in the New Testament. Which means that it's something that God really wants us to understand and grasp. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that God is the one who has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So who is the one who causes us to be born again? It says here very plainly, it's God. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 30, it's of God's own doing that we are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ means that you've been brought into spiritual union with him. You've been made one with him in your soul. And, and his life is now your life. His death is your death. His righteousness is your righteousness. You've been brought into union with Christ. Who brought you into union with Christ? It was God. It was his doing that brought you into Christ. James chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Of God's own will, he brought us forth through the word of truth. So whose will was determining whether you and I were going to be saved in Christ? It was the will of God. And this is why in Romans 9, 16, it says that being brought to salvation does not depend upon human will or exertion, but it depends upon God who has mercy. Now, you can't state the matter more plainly than the way that the New Testament speaks about salvation. Salvation is a gift of God's unmerited favor. It is his grace that pours salvation out upon sinners, and you didn't even merit that salvation by asking for it. God grants it freely because that glorifies his name, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, right there, we are brought face to face with one of the most uncomfortable and unsettling truths concerning what Jesus taught about the new birth. Is that uncomfortable to anyone in this room? I'll be completely honest in saying that for many, many years, this was one of the most uncomfortable things that I was faced with in the Word of God. Jesus says very plainly right here, John 3, 8, that we cannot make the new birth happen. That God is not subject to our wills or our desires in choosing how and when he would pour out the riches of his saving grace. That we are not in control of the new birth. And oh, how we like to be in control. That's what makes us feel uncomfortable. That when Jesus looks at us and says, you are not in control here. I am. You know, for many people, that is exactly why their assurance, or excuse me, that's exactly what their assurance of salvation is built upon. Their sense of control. It's not built upon the mighty, sovereign, saving act of God that has been accomplished in them through the Holy Spirit. But their assurance of salvation is built upon their own willful decision to let God save them. 
I, am, I know that I'm saved because I made a decision to become a Christian, and therefore I know that I'm a Christian. I know that I'm saved because I prayed that prayer and I asked Jesus to save me. And it says in His Word, whoever calls upon His name, He will save them. I did that. I know I'm a Christian because I decided to be baptized in the name of Jesus. I identified with Him. I'm saved, right? Well, any hope of salvation that is built upon our own will to be saved can never produce the kind of assurance that God wants us to have regarding salvation. Because that kind of assurance of salvation that rests upon something that I have done, something I have asked of God, my decision to follow Jesus, if my assurance of eternal salvation is built upon what I have done, then that assurance will only last as long as I am sure of my own sincerity in making that decision. It will only last as sure as I continue wanting to be saved by Jesus. But what happens the moment that I no longer want to be saved? Don't get all pious and holy on me. You Christians know that there are times in your life when you do not want to walk with the Lord. Don't give me those blank stares. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you wake up in the morning and the last thing your heart wants to do is get on your knees and seek the face of God. Temptation rises, whatever that temptation is for you. Maybe it's temptation to bitterness or depression, to doubt, to fear. Maybe it's temptation to pornography, lust, immorality, gluttony. Whatever your temptation is, pride, whatever it is, when that temptation rises up in your heart and it feels really strong, and even though the soul is willing, the flesh is weak, and the last thing you want to do is resist that temptation, you know in that moment... That if your salvation is dependent upon your will to be saved, you're going straight to hell. Anyone who has walked with Christ for a lengthy period of time knows that in your deep moments of weakness and failure in following Christ, the last thing you want is to have your confidence of salvation in Christ resting upon what you have done, or what you have decided to do. See, the real problem there is that with assurance that's built upon our decision to be saved, you're not actually hoping in God for salvation. You are hoping in your ability and your willingness to hope in God for salvation. Do you see the difference there? When your assurance of salvation is not built upon this solid rock foundational work that God accomplishes in your life, but rather it's built upon your own decision to follow Him, you're not actually hoping in God. You're hoping in your willingness to hope in God. Now, I love what Jesus does here with Nicodemus. Because here, Jesus proves that he loved Nicodemus more than to allow him to think that way. He loves you and me more than to allow us to think that way too. Jesus won't let our assurance of being God's children rest upon our flimsy decisions to receive that grace. Or ultimately rest upon our pathetic resolve to have Christ. 
Jesus would have, please listen to me, Jesus would have our assurance built firmly upon something eternally stronger than our own wills. Let me paint very clearly what I'm saying. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus did not shed his blood, live a perfect life and shed his blood for sinners and rise again from the dead and ascend up into heaven where he sits on the throne of grace merely to plead for sinners to receive him. Please, please unshackle my hands and let me in your life. Please open the door. If you don't open the door, I can't come in. Is that really your puny Jesus? That he can't kick the door of your life in if he wanted to? That he can't do anything in this world unless the almighty will of men give him permission? That's not my Jesus. And praise God, that's not your Jesus either. Whether you recognize it about him or not. Jesus would have our assurance of salvation built upon something eternally stronger than our own wills. He would have it built upon the sovereign will of God. That which is immutable, that which is permanent, that which is unvarying, because it belongs to one with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. One whom, when he begins a good work in us, will focus all of his eternal, sovereign, almighty, saving power to bring that good work to its full completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's our hope in Jesus Christ. And that's the glory of understanding that the new birth was not, a, not the result of our own will, our own willfulness, willing to be saved. It's the result of the mighty work of the Spirit coming into our lives and causing us to be able to believe and be saved. Causing us to be saved. Now that leads to the question. If being born again is not of my own will, if it's not anything that I do, if it's not something that I can make happen in my life, then how can I be assured that that work has been accomplished in my life? If it's in our hands simply to call upon Jesus and then at the drop of the hat we're saved, like praying the prayer, you you must pray, you must call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. Don't hear me wrong here. But what I'm saying is, You're not saved merely because one day you of your own will decided to call upon the name of Jesus. So if it's not in our hands like that, how can we be confident and assured that the Spirit has accomplished this great work in us? Where can we find the kind of assurance that God wants us to have in knowing that our salvation is dependent upon His sovereign will and grace? That's the second question. How do I know if I have experienced the new birth? Well, confidence that we belong to the kingdom of God and our assurance of salvation depends on our ability to answer this question for ourselves. So how would we come to know if the Holy Spirit has done this work in us? Well, according to John 3, 8, Jesus tells us that we're going to know if the Spirit has done this work in us by looking for evidences of the new birth in our lives. Do we see evidence? Do we see proof that the Lord has accomplished this work within us? i got to take this off, guys. I'm sorry. You okay with that? Is that all right? All right. 
It's just getting hot. <laughs> All right. How do we know if we have experienced the new birth in our lives? Well, Jesus gives us that answer in John 3.8. We know by looking for the evidences of the Spirit's work in our lives. John 3.8, when Jesus is answering Nicodemus about how the new birth happens, he makes clear that it cannot be controlled by us. However, he also says in this verse that we can know when it's happening. He says the wind blows where it wishes, right? The Spirit moves wherever He sovereignly chooses to move. You, he doesn't move according to your will. He moves according to His will, like the wind. He says the wind blows where it wishes and you don't know where it comes from and you don't know where it's going. In other words, you can't control it. You can't direct it. You can't determine where it's going to go next. However, Jesus says, you can hear it. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sounds. Even though you don't know where it came from and you don't know where it's going. We may not be able to control the wind or understand everything about the wind, but you can tell when the wind is blowing. How can you tell when the wind is blowing? Well, because you hear and you feel its effects. You can hear the rustling of the leaves. You can, you can hear the wind whooshing past your, your ear. You can feel the wind upon your skin. You know the wind is blowing because of the effects of the wind. Well, Jesus says that's how it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. We cannot control the Spirit. We don't understand everything about the Holy Spirit's work in the new birth. But we can tell when the Holy Spirit blows on us with His regenerating power. And we can tell that by paying attention to the effects of His holy wind that it produces in us. The effects that are produced within us by that wind. If we see, if we hear the effects of the Holy Spirit blowing in our lives, in other words, then we can have confidence that we have been born again and that that was God initiating the work. So what are those effects of having been born again? What kind of effects will we experience? So that's what I want to look at together for the rest of the morning. But before we do that, I want to clarify something about what I mean when I say you need to experience the new birth. When we are talking about experiencing or uh, having experiences in the Christian life, especially experiencing the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit, we need to make sure that we understand that experience according to the way the Bible describes it. Okay? So what I'm saying is, when we're talking about spiritual experiences, we can't come to understand those spiritual experiences based upon some other man's opinion or our own opinion about what that experience ought to look like. We must base our understanding of what that experience looks like upon his word. God has told us in his word what Christian experience ought to look like in our lives. And we need to make sure that we are governing our understanding of what it means to have experiences in the Christian life by his word. Now, let me bring that to the new birth. There are many people who believe and even teach that if you have experienced the new birth, it will be tied to some specific date or some specific time or a particular event in your life, or it will be manifest by some emotional high that you experienced at some point in the past. 
And they'll say that if you don't have something like that, then you can't say for certain whether or not you have been born again. Now, I have not heard anyone articulate it that way here in this place, but I have heard many of you qualify that statement of being born again by saying something like, you know, I really don't know when I was born again. I know a lot of people have a testimony about the Lord moving in their lives on a certain day or this a time. I don't really have that, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm born again because of my life now. I want you to know that that's totally fine. In fact, that would be the far more common experience of believers in the Christian, in, within the history of Christianity, where they would not be able to tie their moment of being born again to some specific date. They only know that the, the fruit and the effects of being born again are present in their lives right now. So there are many who say that you've got to have a date, you've got to have a time, you've got to have an event, you've got to have an emotional time of being changed where you were utterly humiliated over your sin before the law and then you were brought into the realization of, of God's grace in Christ in one moment whenever some evangelist preached the gospel to you and you were born again in that moment. Maybe that happened to you. That's how it happened to me. But maybe that's not how it happened with you. And that's okay. Let me assure you that of the many people who have had religious experiences that they tie to their incident of being born again, they may have been really excited by those experiences, but they still have not actually experienced the new birth as their lives demonstrate. There are a plethora of people who can point to some date on the calendar or some event in the past as the moment when they were born again, but their lives nevertheless still demonstrate the reality that they have not yet experienced a new birth. I think this is one of the main reasons why true believers can become so discouraged and disheartened over this topic because they don't understand what it means to experience the new birth. I found some words from Wayne Grudem really helpful. Are you guys with me on this? Hopefully I'm not wasting time talking about this. I, I thought it would be helpful to kind of dig into this a bit. Wayne Grudem wrote on page 852 of his Systematic Theology that because regeneration is a work of God within us in which he gives us new life, it is right to conclude that it is an instantaneous event. It happens only once. At one moment, we were spiritually dead, and then the next moment, we have new spiritual life from God. That's true. Nevertheless, Grudem writes, we do not always know exactly when this instantaneous change occurs. Especially for children growing up in a Christian home, or for people who attend an evangelical church or Bible study over a period of time and grow gradually in their understanding of the gospel, there may not be a dramatic crisis with a radical change of behavior from hardened sinner to holy saint. But there will be an instantaneous change nonetheless when God through the Holy Spirit in an unseen, invisible way awakens spiritual life within. Now listen to this last part. It's crucial. This change will become evident over time in patterns of behavior and desires that are pleasing to God. So according to Grudem, what is definitional, or what is foundational, I should say, to understanding whether or not you've been born again? Is it having a specific date and time, something on the calendar where you can say at 940, September 14th, 2003, I was born again of the Spirit of God? That's mine. 
You can't have that one. <laughs> do you have to have that in order to have been born again? No. What do you have to have in order to be confident that you've been born again? You have to have the change of life that will make evident over time in the patterns of behavior and desires in your heart that will make evident that you have been born of God. You know, for some, the experience of the new birth may have been tied to an event that was as clear as day. You can think of the Apostle Paul there, right? One moment he's riding on his horse, persecuting the church. The next moment he's kicked off of it and blinded by the glory of Christ and all of a sudden realizing who Yahweh really is. Who are you, Yahweh? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. For some people, their conversion is just like that. But for others, their experience of having been born again is more drawn out than a mere moment in time. I'm not saying the act of being born again was drawn out. I'm saying their experience of being born again is drawn out over a period of time. The change happened at one instantaneous moment in your life. The effects of that change come to the surface in time. And they're drawn out maybe over a period until all of a sudden you realize, wow, this change has happened in my life because I'm loving Jesus and I hate my sin. I think that Nicodemus is a good example of that, actually. If you read through the Gospel of John, we run into Nicodemus three times. The first time is here in John 3 where Jesus is kind of taking him off guard and saying, you're not a part of the kingdom of, of God, even if you think you are. You're not yet a part of the kingdom of God because you haven't been born again. The next time we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51, I believe. Yep, that's right. Where we see this growing tension and separation between those whom Nicodemus used to hang with and consider himself to be a part of in that religious group and what he's now coming to realize about them. See, he used to think we were all about the law. We were all about honoring God. We were all about doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, here's an opportunity where they're judging and condemning Jesus without actually hearing from him according to the law. And Nicodemus is the one who points that out. We see in, in him this growing separation between the rest of the Pharisees and what's going on in his own heart. And then we reach the climax of Nicodemus' profession of faith in John 19. When with Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus is right there with him, bringing down the body of Christ and preparing it for burial. What's Nicodemus doing in that moment? That's Nicodemus' public confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He would not have done that if he didn't truly believe in Jesus at that moment. A man just condemned by his, uh, I want to say compadres, his, his religious brethren, a man who was just put to death by them, all of a sudden Nicodemus is going to go take him down from the cross and he's going to help bury him with honors? You don't do that unless you actually believe in Jesus. That's Nicodemus' point of coming to that open recognition that Jesus is Lord and I'm beholden to him. For him, it was a process, and maybe that's what it was like for you. Regardless of which camp you fit into, whether it was an instantaneous, a recognized instantaneous change, or whether it was an instantaneous change that was only recognized after the fact, through a season, 
no matter which camp you fit into, either way, you need to understand something. Number one, don't be ashamed or embarrassed about the way that God has worked in your own life. Because that is your testimony of God's work and faithful dealings with you. And you don't need to be ashamed of that. It's going to be different for each one of us. Your, your experience of grace with Christ is going to look different than my experience of grace with Christ. The important matter is that you actually are experiencing that grace. Thank you, Grant. I'm sure some people appreciate that. So don't be ashamed or embarrassed about the way that God has worked in your own life. That's your testimony of God's saving acts. And you need to hold tightly to that and you need to make sure you never forget. But secondly, and very importantly, we need to understand that ultimately, it does not matter whether you can pinpoint the exact moment or day when you were born again. What matters is that right now and yesterday and this morning and this week, you are able to discern evidences of the new birth in your life. The greatest proof that a person has been brought to new spiritual life in Christ is that the rest of their life is marked by the presence and influence of new spiritual life. So it doesn't, I mean, you can't remember the moment and the day and the circumstances and the time when you were born. You know your birthday because someone else told you your birthday. They told you the events that took place, but you don't remember experiencing that. All you know right now is that you were actually physically born because you're sitting here. You're breathing. You're thinking. You're writing. Hopefully, hopefully we're still engaged, but you're, you're here and you're alive. And that gives proof and evidence to the fact that you have been born. Well, so it is with you spiritually. You may not be able to remember the exact time. You may not know the exact circumstances that the Holy Spirit chose to use to bring you to new birth in Christ. What matters is that right now you have all the effects of one who has been made alive together with Christ. You have those effects manifesting in your life. Maybe I beat that horse a little too much. I just want you to feel assured that your experience of the Christian life does not have to look like everyone else's. It just needs to be governed and defined by the Bible. Now with that qualifier in mind... <clears throat> What are some of the evidences of the new birth that we should be looking for? I believe Jesus lists some of those here in John chapter 3, and we're going to close this morning considering one evidence that Jesus gives us here in this, in this section. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, You cannot see the kingdom of God apart from the new birth. Now, right there, we have a hint of one of the evidences of having been born again. <clears throat> what is that evidence? Well, if you cannot see the kingdom of God apart from the new birth, that means that within the new birth, you must have experienced some spiritual awakening that enables you to see the kingdom of God. In other words, in the new birth, one of the evidences of having been born again is that you have been enabled to see the kingdom of God. This is how God, through His Son, overcomes the internal effects of our fallen nature. Remember how that was described in John chapter 1, verse 5. 
that the light is shining into our darkness, but, but what's wrong with us? We can't comprehend that light. We can't understand the light of the Son of God that has been shining upon us through creation from the very beginning. We're blinded to it. Our sin has hardened our hearts to it. We are now living in a, in a, in a, uh, a realm of spiritual darkness where we can no longer understand or comprehend or even see the light of Christ. And yet in the new birth, the Spirit of God comes and deals with that internal blindness in such a way that we are set free from it. And we begin seeing with the eyes of our hearts the glory of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. There should be some amens there. I was thinking about that this morning, of what happened when the Lord awakened me to the glory of Jesus for the first time. You know what immediately fell off of me? That active longing and that yearning that I had to run in the ways of sin. I just wanted to run after Christ because I finally saw his beauty in a way that I had never seen it before. That's what the Spirit of God does in the new birth. He removes this internal blindness to the glory of Christ. And by his power, he enables us to see Jesus in the glory of his light. And when we look at Jesus, we not only see him, but we see in him the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Seeing the kingdom of God in Jesus. Well, primarily seeing the kingdom will be centered upon how we see and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether or not you see the kingdom of God in Christ will be manifest in the way that you see and respond to Christ's gospel. In John chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus makes this connection with Nicodemus. Where in the earlier verses, he's told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you think you see the kingdom of God, but you don't yet see what you think you see. You must be born again, and then you will see the kingdom of God. He makes a connection from that in verse 11 to the fact that Nicodemus does not receive or believe in Jesus' testimony. So there's this connection between the reality of not having been born again, not seeing the kingdom of God, and not receiving Jesus' testimony. In other words, our ability to see the kingdom of God in Christ will be proven by the way we see and respond to the message of Christ in the gospel. We see this all over the scriptures. John 1.18, in the exercise of God's own will, he brought us forth through the word of truth, through the word of the gospel. That is God's means of, of bringing us forth to new life in Christ. When we, when we hear the gospel, when we hear someone explaining the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and all that entails for us as condemned sinners under the law of God, those who are worthy of God's justice and His condemnation and are deserving of hell. When we hear someone speaking about the good news in relation to that bad news, we're like Lydia, right? Right? Our hearts are, are opened, and all of a sudden we are drawn to pay attention to the word that is being spoken. That is a marker and a sign, that attachment, that, that, that drawing of the soul unto the message of Jesus. That is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working the new birth in you, bringing you to faith in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter writes, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, 
but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding Word of God. So what is the means by which God causes us to be born again? It's His Word. And Peter says in verse 25, he goes on to say that the Word of God he's talking about is that Word which was preached to them. The Gospel. The word about Jesus, Peter goes on to describe that. The word about Jesus, the living stone, who was rejected by men, but who is choice and precious in the eyes of God. See, when the Spirit of God causes us to be born again, He takes the word of Christ and the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus, and He opens our spiritual eyes to see the truth in it, where we're not just listening to the message and trying to be convinced of it, but we are awakened to see the real truth of Jesus in the gospel. It doesn't take convincing. It doesn't take someone using choice words and, 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 and lofty speech in order to convince us that Jesus truly is the Messiah. The Spirit of God does that work in us. He shows us that Jesus is choice and precious in the eyes of God. And when we are awakened to see that, when we are awakened to see that He is chosen and precious in God's eyes, the Holy Spirit gives us new spiritual perception that makes Jesus chosen and precious in our eyes too. That's evidence that you've been born again. That Jesus is precious in your eyes. And you will give anything up in order to pursue him. I couldn't talk about this without going to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 verses 3 through 6, it tells us the same thing. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now stop. What characterizes someone who is blinded by the devil? What characterizes someone who is lost and perishing? According to Paul, they're characterized by the fact that they do not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They might hear the message of the gospel. They might give mental assent to the gospel, but they don't yet see the light of the gospel. It hasn't penetrated and pierced down into their heart and their affections. They haven't been awakened to a newness of life and love in Jesus. Their minds are blinded to His beauty. They don't see Him as worthy of denying themselves and taking up their cross and following Him. They don't see Him as worthy of their praise. They don't see Him as worthy of keeping their minds fixed upon Him all day. They don't see Him as worth anything like that. At best, Jesus is worth their Sunday morning attention and their time in the pew. He's not worth Monday morning at work or Monday night. But Paul says in verse 6, But the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there's more power manifested in the new birth than there was manifested in the, in the whole of the first creation. Here's that power being manifested. Very clearly, according to Paul, here in this verse, the Holy Spirit tells us that God in His sovereign power moves in the hearts of those whom He will bring to salvation. 
And he moves in their hearts with the message of the gospel. The message of Christ. You know how Paul defines that message here in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? It's the message of Christ and the message of Christ crucified. It's the word of the cross that is foolishness to the world, but has made the power of God for salvation to those who are the called. <clears throat> it's the message of Christ, Him crucified, Him resurrected from the dead. The message of Him having been raised up on high and seated on the throne of heaven. The one who now gives grace to those who come to Him seeking it and dealing out judgment to His enemies who refuse to seek Him. When God comes and brings a sinner to new life in Christ, what their minds had been blinded to before, God in his almighty power enables them to see. And to see with the eyes of their hearts a divine and supernatural light in the message of the gospel that penetrates to the core of their being. And they see and they believe God's glory revealed in Jesus. When a natural person hears the gospel of Jesus, it's foolishness to him. But when the mind and heart are illuminated by God the Holy Spirit, and they hear the gospel, they're no longer blinded to the power and the wisdom and the glory and the beauty of the gospel. They are enabled by the Spirit to discern the very power of God working in that gospel to bring them to salvation. So what is the fruit of having been born again? According to Jesus, it's that you are enabled by the Spirit of God to see the kingdom of God. So as we are considering whether or not we are among those who have experienced the new birth, whether or not we are children of God and members of his kingdom, we must begin by asking ourselves, do I see the kingdom of God in all its beauty and its glory and its splendor when I look at Jesus Christ? It's like our memory verse today, right? John 6, 40. This is the will of my Father who sent me, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes, I will give him eternal life. What do you see when you look at Jesus? That's the real ultimate test of whether you've been born again. What do you see when you look at him? Do you receive his testimony to the truth about God and about us and the glorious truth about himself? We're told in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit's job is to exalt the glory of Christ in our hearts. And where his winds of regeneration are blowing in the hearts of a sinner, that sinner will be enabled to see the glory of God's kingdom shining in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that is you. And if it's not you, and you want to talk about it, see one of the elders immediately following this sermon, and we will spend the rest of the day talking with you about what it means to behold the glory of Jesus. We will explain to you the gospel, and we will point you back to him. And we'll tell you to keep running and fleeing to him for refuge until you find that door opening for your soul. Would you pray with me? Father, our eyes are dim, and the best among us
can only see through a glass dimly right now. But we long for that day when the dimness of the glass will be replaced by seeing you face to face and our faith will be made sight and we will be with you forever. Lord Jesus, I long for that day. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts and the lives of your people here so that they too would increasingly long for the day when they will see with their own eyes, their physical eyes, what they've only been able to see with the eyes of their hearts. Father, quicken us by your spirit. Keep us alive. Blow upon the embers of our faith. Fan, them into, fan, fan us into flame. And let us burn brightly for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, hear the benediction, the blessing that you should go out under from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. He will surely do it. Amen. Amen. May you go in that hope.